This might, might be better if I turn it on. <laughs> well, as the kids go out, I just want to say a big, great big happy St. Patrick's Day to everybody. Did anyone eat any green food, that, any green food this morning? Look at this, I'm, I'm rocking the microphone already, hang on. All right, I'll try not to move too much. Yeah, I hope you didn't eat any green food just because it bit in the fridge. Oh my goodness. I'll switch it up. Is that good? Okay, I hope you didn't eat any green food just because it had been in the fridge too long. I hope that someone was having fun with you. I don't know, when I was younger, my mom would make green pancakes or she would make green bread that would make green toast and yeah, it was a little strange, but it was, it was fun. Let me read to you about St. Patrick. On St. Patrick's Day, let me read to you about St. Patrick. Before thumbing your nose at all the carousing and empty revelry that much of this day has become, it's worth taking at least a brief glance at the inspiring Christian origin of and missional impulse behind what we now mark as St. Paddy's. While the day has become a celebration of all things Irish, the original feast was about gospel advance. It was not about parades, but pioneering the church among an unreached people. It was not about lifting Lenten restrictions or of eating and drinking, but bringing God's amazing grace to a pagan nation. The March 17 feast, declared in the early 17th century, remembers Patrick as the one who led the 5th century Christian mission to Ireland. Unlike Britain, the Emerald Isle was beyond the brands and bounds of the Roman Empire. The Irish were considered uncivilized barbarians, and many thought their illiteracy and volatile emotionalism... Have you met any Irish people? How many of you are Irish? You'll admit it today. Partly Irish, at least? Okay. We don't think you're barbarians, really. Uh, many people considered that these things put them outside the reach of the gospel. But Patrick knew better. In a strange and beautiful turn of providence, he'd spent six years among them as a captive, learned their language, and developed a heart for the Irish. Like Joseph sold into slavery to one day save Egypt and his brothers, so God sent Patrick into slavery to ready Ireland for a coming salvation. Patrick was born in the late 4th century, the best speculations say around 385 AD, in what was now Northeast Ireland. He was born among the Celtic Britons to a Romanized family of Christians. His father was a deacon, his grandfather was a priest, but his parents' faith didn't find a place in his heart early on. In his youth, according to George Hunter, he lived towards the wild side, but God arrested him with severe mercy. He was kidnapped at age 16 by Irish raiders and taken back to Ireland, where he served as a slave for six years under a tribal chief who was also a druid. While a slave in Ireland, God opened his eyes to the gospel of his childhood. It was as a captive that he came to understand the Irish Celtic people and their language and culture with a kind of intuitive profundity that is usually only possible, as in Patrick's case, from the underside. The underside. When he eventually escaped from slavery, he was a changed man, now a Christian from the heart. 
He studied for ministry and led a parish in Britain for nearly 20 years. This could have been the end of the story. But at age 48, which was already past a man's life expectancy in the 5th century, Patrick had a dream, which proved to be his own version of a Macedonian call. An Irish accent pleaded, We appeal to you, holy servant boy, to come and walk among us. Having known the language and the customs from his captivity, and long having strategized about how the gospel might come to the Irish, he now answered the call to return to the place of his pain with a message of joy. The slave returned to his captors with good news of true freedom. But this would be no ordinary mission. The Irish Celtics were considered barbarians, as the Romans were prone to consider anyone who was not Roman. The Irish may have had a few Christians among them, but they were an unreached people with no thriving church or gospel movement. Patrick would take, different and contro- take a different and controversial approach to the prevailing missionary efforts of the post-apostolic early church. Instead of Romanizing the people, or making them Roman, and seeking to civilize them with respect to Roman customs, he wanted to see the gospel penetrate deeply into the Irish culture and produce an indigenous movement. He did not mean to colonize the Irish, but to truly evangelize them. The fact fact that Patrick understood the people in their language, their issues, and their ways serves as the most strategically significant single insight that was to drive the wider expansion of Celtic Christianity and stands as perhaps our greatest single learning from this movement. There is no shortcut to understanding people. When you understand the people, you will often know what to say and do and how. When the people know that Christians understand them, they also infer that God understands them too. Patrick knew the Irish well enough to engage them where they were and build authentic gospel bridges into their society and culture. He wanted to see the gospel grow in Irish soil rather than pave it over with a Roman road. Their belief that ultimate reality is complex and their fascination with rhetorical triads and the number three opened them to Christian's triune God. Christianity's contrasting features of idealism and practically engaged identical, oh, it it practically engaged identical traits in the Irish character. No other religion could have engaged the Irish people's love for heroism, stories, and legends like Christianity. Some of Christianity's values and virtues essentially matched or fulfilled ideals in Irish piety and folklore. Irish Christianity was, de- was able to deeply affirm and fulfill the Irish love for nature and their belief in the closeness of the divine. A notable part of his strategy was that Patrick didn't go solo to Ireland. He went with the team. Just as Jesus sent out his disciples together and Paul and Barnabas went out together, so Patrick assembled a close-knit crew that would tackle the work together in the same location laboring for the founding of a church before moving on together to the next tribe. It was what Hunter calls a group approach to apostolic ministry. We don't have record of the details of Patrick's ministry teams and strategies, but Hunter says, this is the author who is referenced a lot in this article, He says, from a handful of ancient sources, we can piece together an outline of a typical approach, which undoubtedly varied from one time and setting to another. 
Patrick's teams would have been about a dozen members. They would approach a tribe's leadership and seek conversion, or at least their clearance to be there, and they'd set up a camp nearby. The team would meet the people, engage them in conversations and ministry, and look for people who appeared receptive. In due course, one band member or another would probably join with each responsive person to reach out to relatives and friends. They would minister weeks and months among, weeks and months among them, eventually pursuing baptisms and the founding of a church. They would leave behind a team member or two to provide leadership for the fledgling church and move with a convert or two to the next tribe. With such an approach, the church that emerged within the tribe would have been astonishingly indigenous. While Patrick's pioneering approach is often celebrated today, and perhaps a model in some respects of the kind of mission well-suited for an increasingly post-Christian society 1,500 years later, most of his contemporaries weren't impressed. The British leaders were offended and angered that Patrick was spending priority time with pagans, sinners, and barbarians. Sorry, Irish people. But Patrick knew such an approach had good precedent. The one who saved Patrick, while a nominal Christian and an Irish captive, was once called a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That's Jesus. And Jesus said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Instead of acquiescing to the religious establishment, he took the gospel to the uncouth, unreached Irish. And instead of coasting to a cushy retirement, he gave 28 years to the nation-changing evangelization of Ireland. According to tradition, Patrick died March 17th. Many think the year was 461, but we don't know for certain. While today's celebrations will leave much to be forgotten, for those who love Jesus and the advance of his gospel, there are some good things to remember about Patrick. So St. Patrick had a mission. He had a team that he went on mission together. There was a call on his life, and he partnered, obviously, with similar-minded people in order to accomplish that call. And why do I read you all this? Not just because it's St. Patrick's Day, but because Hillcrest has a mission. Hillcrest has a call, many callings, and it takes a great gospel partnership. It will take a great gospel partnership to accomplish those callings. So we've been... On a journey, the last four weeks, we've been walking through what our church's mission statement is. And we, we've been, uh, we, this isn't a clothesline to air our dirty laundry. This is a clothesline to remind us what our mission statement is. So every week, I've been coming back to the mission statement, either myself or Pastor Kurt. And we've been walking through it. And at the beginning of our time together, nobody could really stand up or was willing to stand up. Maybe some of them could. And quote our mission statement. But I'm hoping by the end of the today, many of you will have it entrenched in your memory. But the shirts on the line tell the, tell the mission statement story. So we strive, and then you've got to put a little uh, 2C in here. We strive to see all people reconciled to God, and I'm wearing the final point, mature in Christ. That's our mission statement. Do you want to read it with me together? We strive to see all people reconciled to God and mature in Christ. I really like the 2C part. I know some churches in town have bumper stickers, but I think our church should just have a gang sign. I, you know, if you see me downtown, I'll just be like, you know, because that's simpler and it saves some money anyhow. All right, uh, here we go. Let's try it again. If you want to do the gang sign, you can. Okay. We strive 
to see all people reconciled to God and mature in Christ. Awesome, awesome. So we've talked about striving, how we work, how we strategize, how we plan, how we dream about accomplishing this mission together. We talk about all people. All people matter to God. They have to matter to us. If we're going to have the same heart as God, you can't pick and choose and say, oh, these people matter to God and those people don't. All people matter to God. Reconcile to God. That's God's plan. That's God's desire. That's God's heart. He wants people to be reconciled to him so much so that he gave his son for that to happen. That the Father put a plan in place for God the Father put a plan in place for us to be reconciled to God. God the Son embraced that plan and went to the cross. So we've been talking about this all week, but now we get to this part about being mature in Christ. What does it look to be? Uh, what does it look like to be mature in Christ? And I want to. I'm going to read to you. I think probably the verse that I think says it the best because it actually has the the phrase mature in Christ in it. But I love what it also it said. Also. What else it says? So it's Colossians 1, 28 and 29. I'll just read it to you. And we'll come back to it maybe a couple times in this message. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28 and 29. It says, He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. So we're proclaiming Jesus. The goal of all of this is that we present, we may be able to present everyone mature in Christ. What's that? What, where's, where does the presentation happen? I was thinking about this. Where, what's the presentation? Well, if you, if you feel a sense of responsibility, and as followers of Jesus, we should feel a sense of responsibility to carry out his mission, then we, what would be the end result of the mission? It would be to, be to present back to God the results of the mission, right? So you, just like Patrick in Ireland, he sort of had the raw material of Irish people who didn't know God and at the end of his life was able to present, well, I'm assuming hundreds and maybe thousands of them back to God and saying, these have become your disciples, which is what Jesus' uh, teachings was. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. So that's quite amazing that here were uh, these uh, people who didn't know Christ and became firm followers of Jesus. That's presenting people mature in Christ. Mature enough, I thought it was quite interesting, his model. Mature enough that he could leave just a few people in a community and churches sprung up all over Ireland. And uh, so people went from not being followers of Jesus to becoming sort of like just barely fought, like not, I mean, what's the word, baby followers of Jesus. You know, just born, you know, brand new in Christ, but sort of wet behind the ears. Not a lot of experience in that to becoming grown up and grown up and grown up to the point where he would be able to come back to God and say, Look, you called me to Ireland. You made it clear I was supposed to go, and this is the result. I think Hillcrest should also have a similar legacy. I don't know if there's any islands left that we're supposed to go to. That would be nice, I suppose, unless it's a cold island, maybe not so nice. But we should be able to point back to the fact that we have not shirked our duty in this area. We've actually taken it very seriously, and we sought to figure out how we can best 
present people to God someday and say, at one point, this person wasn't a mature follower of Jesus. They either were an immature follower of Jesus or they weren't a follower of Jesus at all. But now they've experienced so much in this life and now for eternity as well. So to become mature in Christ and to present them as such. So how does this, how does this happen? I want to just walk through uh, this this scripture. Let's read it again, because this is the one I want to anchor in the most, and we'll read other scriptures too. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. So the first thing I want to say is that Jesus' character is the measurement of maturity. Jesus' character is the measurement of of maturity. He is the one we proclaim, it says, but then it goes on to say we, we present everyone fully mature in Christ. Now, this could have been a message about just becoming mature. Like, grow up, get a haircut, get a real job, move out of your parents' basement. You know, that could have a message. There's lots of things that we can say are marks of maturity in our culture, but this is not what we're talking about. We're talking about becoming mature in Christ. Oh, those marks of maturity are also good. But that's not what this sermon's about. It's becoming mature in Christ. And what does it look like to become mature in Christ? I'm going to read you Romans 8, 28 to 30. It's, it's very interesting. It says, we know that in all things, so here, listen to what God is doing behind the scenes, potentially in your life. Listen to it. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. So do you love God? Have you responded to his call on your life? If so, God is already working behind the scenes in your life for your good. And we're going to find out more of the details of that good in a second. But that's a pretty profound thing. You say, well, it seems like all the dynamics in my life are going south right now, and a lot of things are going bad. God is working behind the scenes for your good. If you love him, if you're called according to his purpose, you're his follower, that's a dynamic you can bank on. You don't know what that good is always. Other scriptures tell us who can trace the hand of the Lord, who can trace what he's doing. We don't know. We, we try to sleuth it out and figure it out, and we have hints here and there. Most of the time, we don't know what God is at work doing. But we know that he is at work. Let me read it again. We know that in all things, including Whatever negative experience you're having now, or that circumstance that cropped up this week that you didn't see coming, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. And then here's this, I always like paraphrasing this one. I'll read it to you, and then I'll paraphrase it for you to make it simpler. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Okay, we'll stop there. So, lots of big theological words. Let me, let me sim, make it, sum it up here. God knows you. He's got a destiny for you. And that's to become like him, like Jesus. So that there'll be a whole bunch of people. He says, firstborn among many brothers. So there'll be a whole fam, big family, spiritual family, of people who all have the same experience. Known by God. God's got a destiny for their lives. And a huge, huge part of that destiny is that they become like Jesus. 
they become like Jesus. Now, there's different ways we become Jesus. I, mean, I could go on to a whole sermon on how physically we'll become like Jesus in heaven and the glorified body and all that stuff. But right now, I'm just really talking about becoming like Jesus in your character. Becoming like Jesus in your character. God is working for your good in the background. But one of the main things he's working out for your good in the background is that in all circumstances, good and very, very bad, he's working in all those circumstances that your character is transformed so it becomes like Jesus' character. Let me read you um, how the, a little bit of some of the nuts and bolts of how this happens. John 15, 4 says, Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch, great illustration, Jesus is a vine, we're a branch. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. So Jesus introduces this metaphor of, of a branch in a vineyard, which obviously would have grapes on it, but if, it's, if it gets broken off from the vine, it's just going to die on the ground. There's not going to be any fruit produced. But God's called us to bear fruit. And what is that fruit? What's the character of Jesus? To be like him. Well, how do we become like him? We remain in him. Uh, the older English versions of some translations say abide in him. It's our relationship with him. It's not that we, God says, I want you to go out and have uh, the character of Jesus. And we make it a to-do list and a checklist and, and we go accomplish it on our own strength. No, it's actually produced in staying connected with Jesus. Staying in relationship with Jesus. Because he's the vine through which the life flows into us, the branch. And what does the fruit look like? What does this fruit look like? Galatians 5, to 23 is probably one of the best descriptions of the fruit that Jesus is talking about. And it says, but the fruit of the Spirit, so God's... Holy Spirit at work in our lives. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, or patience is another way of saying it, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So, you want to be like Jesus. Well, this is a pretty good list. In fact, if you went back and read through the stories about Jesus, and many of you did read through the book of John, you would have seen a lot of these things showing up. Jesus loved his joy. His joy. Some people miss that sometimes. Uh, and and I, I miss it sometimes, that Jesus was a joyful person, and that our God is joyful. That's, that's something to get your head around. Sometimes people see him as just stern and sober and serene, but God is actually... Uh, takes great delight in what he's working out in our lives and what he's working out in the world. And um, you'll see that again and again in different parts of the scripture. That God, our God is joyful. So do you love like Jesus if we're going through this list? Are you joyful like Jesus? Are you peaceful like Jesus? Remember he was asleep. We were reading the Jesus Storybook Bible at uh, the supper table and our five-year-old was laughing at the picture because in the picture of the Jesus Storybook Bible, there's the disciples in a boat and it's on this tsunami type wave in the Sea of Galilee and there's one disciple hanging by the mast and there's Jesus totally asleep in the boat. So the boat's like on this angle and Jesus is just totally asleep and then this other disciple hanging on for dear life. And I thought it was just a great picture of us and our Savior in the exact same situation. So whatever you're going through this week, you're hanging on to the mast Jesus is so peaceful, it's not even funny. In fact, it, 
they would annoy the disciples. Jesus, don't you care? We're going to die. He's like, I got this. Relax. Peace. Be still. Forbearance or patient. Are you patient like Jesus? I mean, you look at the story of the cross and you realize that's a whole other level of patience. That's a whole other level of endurance. Goodness like Jesus, faithful like Jesus, gentle like Jesus, if self-control like Jesus. Now, all of us are inwardly saying, no, 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 because Jesus is here and, whoa, we're way down here. But the reality is over the course of a lifetime, the character of Jesus, as you stay connected with Jesus, starts getting imprinted on your life. If you're open to the processes he'll take you through, if you're open to the training he'll take you through, if, you're, if, you, if you intentionally choose to go down a pathway of greater and greater maturity, which isn't always the easiest pathway, let's be honest, you'll start seeing these things growing, showing up in greater measure in your life. You say, well, I used to be very shallow in my love, and there's still realities where it's not that strong, but it's stronger. And I attribute that not to the fact that I just sort of grip my teeth to be more loving, but that I hung out with Jesus. I stayed connected to the vine. Not perfectly, but even imperfectly, it's had an effect And I've seen God's good plan, his destiny for me, the thing that he's working in the background, start to work out in the foreground of my life that these uh, character qualities of Jesus are showing up more and more. So the first thing we're saying about the verse in Colossians is that it's mature in Christ. We're talking about becoming like Jesus in our character. But then how do we we do it? Well, it it says in first, um, sorry, let me just back it up here. For Colossians, it says, He is the one we proclaim. He's the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. So there's sort of, the Bible's got some grammatical stuff to it. It's really helpful to learn this along the way, and I'm still learning it. When you see so, you realize that the the thing that come before it is really important to read, right? So you say, so we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. You're like, yeah, we want to do that. So, oh, that means I have to read the line before it or something before it to find out how. And the how is he's the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone in all wisdom. Proclaiming Jesus is the means of becoming mature. You say, is it that simple? The way that you become mature is just by proclaiming Jesus? Well, the truth about Jesus and believing the truth about Jesus is what begins to change how this muscle operates. You've got some pretty strong pathways in your brain. You've got some things that you think that are pretty strong. And the Bible talks about the powerful change that happens in a life when your mind is renewed. As a man thinks, so is he. Your perspective changing, what you believe changing, will change how you act, how you live, how you see yourself, how you see others, how you see God. It's really important what you believe. It's really important what you believe. And so proclaiming Jesus is saying, here's the truth about who God is. 
who, of course, Jesus is the best representation of God because of the incarnation. When God becomes man, we, it's like we get an up-close look at the character of God in everyday situations. We, it's really, it's helpful. But we need to keep proclaiming Jesus. I find it interesting when you look at the, how the early Christian leaders try to help the early churches succeed at their mission. So you see where it's like you come into a town, just like Patrick coming into an Irish village, but it would have been like Paul and Timothy or Paul and Silas or Barnabas, and they'd come into like a Greek village, and they would talk about Jesus, right? they tell people this, this story about Jesus, which for the Jews, it would have been, they would have had some resistance to it for certain reasons, and the Greeks would have found it strange for certain reasons, but the Holy Spirit was active in all that they were doing, and people became followers of Jesus. Now, after they become followers of Jesus, Paul writes all these letters to all these churches he's been to, well, and even to some he hasn't been to, like Rome. And he writes these, these letters, and in the letters, you'd think he'd say, okay, you know what, that whole thing, the gospel, the story about Jesus and how you can become his follower, okay, let's just move on from that and let's get on to the really mature stuff. But no, he actually doesn't do that. When he writes back to these, uh, to these people, he emphasizes again the gospel, the good news about Jesus. Because it's not just the way that we become followers of Jesus, it's the way that we mature as followers of Jesus. Gospel truth needs to sink in deep. It needs to permeate every aspect of our lives. And it needs to permeate into, er into the areas of our lives where our belief is meant to shift dramatically. It's meant to shift dramatically. If you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, maybe you've experienced that at certain points. You're like, okay, I know the gospel or I understand the truth about Jesus. But then someday you're reading the Bible or you're hearing someone speak and a new aspect suddenly connects. And you go, oh, that really changes everything. That really changes everything. I, you know, I've been walking with Jesus most of my life. And I'm surprised every single year about the newness of the gospel. And you say, well, the message hasn't changed. No, it hasn't. But the newness as it applies to my life, I suddenly realize, oh, it affects my career. It affects my marriage. It affects my, my being a dad. It affects my, uh, my financial interactions. It, it, it affects every single aspect of my life. The gospel is not just how to go to heaven. It's the, it's the central truth about all human history, and it's the central truth about our lives. So when we get baptized, we're saying that. We're saying, hey, just in case you didn't know, I'm a follower of Jesus. And what's true about Jesus is the most defining thing about me. So you could know that I'm a soccer player. You could know that, uh, washed up soccer player. You could know that, um, you know, I come from a big family. You could know that I was born in Vancouver and raised in Manitoba. You could know these things about my life. You could know where I went to college. You could know none of those things define who I am like Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So 
So I can tell parts of my story. I can say, the day my, our firstborn son was born, our first son, what a, what, it's like a TSN turning point. You went from not being a, a parent to being a parent. And for me, it was like not being an adult to being an adult because I realized, got to grow up today. <laughs> this just got real. This one's not leaving, right? Or you could even, <laughs> I don't know, nobody else had that experience maybe, but I did. That was the day I swore I would stop playing video games online all the time. I did. I realized, got to grow up, got to grow up. I'm 30. That's true. That's a true story. TSN turning point, you say. What about the day when I said, will you marry me to my beautiful wife who's sitting in the front row here? Hi, honey. <laughs> That's a TSN turning point. But you know, even on our wedding day, when we were celebrating this wonderful coming together of our lives, we took time to tell people the truth. We confessed in full. I got up at the reception and just said, hey, guys, we just got to share, you know, the detail that maybe you don't know. And that is that before we met each other, we each met someone else. We met Jesus. And he's our first love and always will be. And even though this day is massively significant in our life, it's not nearly as significant as the day that we met Jesus. Different days for each of us. But that was the TSN turning point. That was the biggest ground-shifting event of our whole lives. And that's what we proclaim when we get baptized to the world. Know anything else about me that defines my identity, this one defines my identity the most. Part of maturity in Christ is coming to realize that being a child of God is the most significant, the most anchoring, the most meaningful part of your identity. Yeah, you cheer for certain sports teams. Yeah, you have a certain ethnic background. Yeah, you went to a certain school. Yeah, you got a certain education. Yes, you're part of a significant union. All those things might play a role. But they're just the planets, and Jesus is the sun that they rotate around. And that's maturing in Christ, recognizing it in every area of your life that Jesus defines who we are. Hebrews 12, 2 says, we fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So one of the Again, we talked about being connected to Jesus, being in relationship with Jesus. He's the vine, we're the branches. This is, talks about fixing your eyes on Jesus. Keep coming back again and again to look at what Jesus has done for you and allow that to affect your life. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all, with unveiled faces, that's really quite the metaphor because uh, if anyone was to approach God, they would want a veil over their face uh, because of the glory of God. We all, with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory, and are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So we're being transformed degree by degree into, ever, into the ever-increasing, uh, the image of God in his ever-increasing glory. So I've told you two already. Let me tell you the third real quick. So Jesus' character is the measurement of maturity. Proclaiming Jesus is the means of maturity. So that happens 
here, I proclaim Jesus, but it also happens in your relationships, in your friendships, where you say to each other, uh, it, you know, let's, let's look at Jesus. Let's focus on Jesus. Let's, let's talk about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And finally, Jesus supplies the energy. Jesus supplies the energy. I love how he says, to this end, presenting everyone fully mature in Christ, back to our main passage, to this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. So we talked about we strive, that Christians are not just sitting back on their couch because Jesus has saved us waiting for him to take us home. We have lots of work to do, and we work hard. And the Apostle Paul said he worked harder than all of them because he realized how much grace had been poured out on his life. So we strive, and here he says, I strenuously contend. It sounds like the kind of work where you might put your back out. I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. So I work hard, but it's not me. It's not mainly me. I mean, yes, I sweat. Yes, I get up early. Yes, I stay up late. Yes, I work hard. But it's Christ who works in me. So I'm dependent on his energy, his work, his spirit. Colossians 4.12 says about this man, Epaphras, and Paul is talking about him. He says, Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ, sends his greetings. He is always wrestling. Okay? Think of a wrestler, like a real wrestler, you know, Olympic wrestler, not like, the, you know, the guys, the actors wrestling. But anyhow, think of a big Brawny, muscular, profusely sweaty man. Testosterone coursing through his system. He drank 20 eggs this morning. Okay? Epaphras. He is always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. Paul says, hey, just want to encourage you. You know Epaphras? And they're like, oh yeah. No, I don't know if Epaphras was big and brawny and muscular. But in prayer, he was. He might have been short in stature. He might have been sort of skinny like me. But he was a giant in prayer. And they said, Epaphras is going to the mattresses for you in prayer. Why? So you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured, so that you grow up in him, so that you don't stay an infant in the faith, you don't just get to sort of adolescent level in your faith, but you become a father or a mother in the faith. Jesus supplies the energy, but he calls us to partner with him. There's been a great emphasis in the church here on prayer, growing in prayer, developing prayer teams, intentional, strategic prayer, prayer for leaders, prayer for initiatives that we're doing, prayer for ground that we hope to take. We think Jesus wants us to take. Lord, would you, I, I would say prayer is the artillery that softens up the enemy defenses so the ground troops can march in and take it. And the Lord is raising up Epaphrases in our midst. Not all men, obviously. Women, too. Who wrestle in prayer so that people someday 
when they're presented to the Father, will be presented as mature in Christ. Fathers and mothers, they weren't at the beginning, but they were at the end. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 Thessalonians 5.24 encourages us, it says, the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. So you say, okay, Jesus is the, is the measurement of character, of, of our being mature in Christ. He's the means when we keep talking about and emphasizing the gospel in Jesus. That's how we grow up. That's how Paul encouraged the Galatians to grow up. That's how Paul encouraged the Romans by, by telling them about his gospel. That's how they were going to become more mature. Jesus is going to supply the energy. We're going to call out to that in prayer. But I think, what do we do to partner with this? And I think it's we commit to a pathway. We commit to a pathway. I think of all the different things we've done we've, in the last little window to press on to maturity as individuals in our church. We went through the Hearing God seminar. Some of you read through the whole book of John. And some of you read through the first 30 chapters of Psalms. And for some of you, that was a huge victory. Some of you didn't get all the way through, but it was still a huge victory for what you read. It was just like, I read more than I would have read if I hadn't been engaged on this pathway with other people. So it was, it was more. It was, like, it was like you flexed those spiritual muscles more than you had before in that area. Praise God for that discipleship pathway. And, and, and some of you went through the, the Tuesday night group or Thursday night group, whatever it was, with Laura Blackman to grow in your ability to hear God's voice. And I heard lots of great reports from people saying, I did grow. God really spoke to me. There were some significant things that shifted spiritually in my life in that group. Another pathway. If you're in a life group, you've probably, many of the life groups were st- are studying their way through the book of John, not just having read it through, but now there's a lot of discussion and a lot of talking about the implications of what they learn about Jesus in the book of John. That's a pathway of maturity. There was the week of prayer. A week of prayer in our church where people came at noon and at night and then sometimes on their own and we had prayer stations in the prayer room and, and lots of prayer meetings and times and we had a prayer summit at the beginning with, uh, which was awesome and another pathway for maturity to grow up, to be mature in Christ. Right now we've just launched Alpha. Two weeks ago we launched Alpha. We have a, uh, a number of people, I don't know, somewhere between 15 and 20 people who are taking an Alpha, which is just walking through the basics of the truth about the gospel. It's awesome. Some people are there because they're like, I want to get, I want to know more about this. Some people are saying, I want to know more about this so I can tell people more about this. They're taking a pathway to maturity. We just, Conquer started on our Conquer, a men's uh, group for Sexual purity in the group. It started on uh, Wednesday. And uh, it was awesome. We had a whole bunch of guys come out. I am so thrilled. This year, I'm just a participant. Last year, I was leading it. But now there's actually a team of men who have uh, really grown in these areas. And they're, they're now, now able to lead us. That's advancement for our church, by the way, in case you aren't catching it. That's huge advancement for our church when uh, leaders rise up. When you start seeing champions emerge in certain areas, you know that God's at work. And so I just loved it. This week I sat at the table just as a participant with half a dozen guys and really, you know, guys of different ages and sharing and we got Tim Bits in the middle we're munching on and we're just talking about this area that's so perplexing for so many men and it's perplexing for women too. 
And I was like, we have chosen to take a pathway to maturity in this area. We've embraced the path. It's not an easy path. It's not for wimps. There's moments where it's a little bit tough. But I would invite you to come join us. Do something that's a little bit tough. Flex some spiritual muscles in your life. Get around some other men and, 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 uh, and go on the journey together, a pathway of maturity. Some of you, uh, we just did our set free retreat. Our March set free retreat was this weekend, so Friday and Saturday. We had an incredible time, great leaders. We had leaders from uh, North Battleford, uh, Assiniboia, Swift Current, Regina, and Nippon. Actually, there's about four of them left from Nippon who are, we're going to pray for at the end of the service, just off to the side here. We're going to pray over there. If you love people from Nippon, come and pray with them. This, you know what, this is the church that when the Humboldt Bronco tragedy happened, this was the church that were the first responders. They were that church that you saw on the news. You know, when you, when you were reading news reports and you're saying, the prime minister has said this, the president of the United States has said this, and Pastor Jordan Gatsby has said this. That's that church, and that's that pastor. So we've got four leaders from that church here with us this morning. We're going to pray for them because they're a significant church in a significant community and God has got some amazing plans for them. But if you were at Set Free this week from our church, there's a devotional that we gave you, a 30-day devotional. That's another pathway. If you follow that pathway, if you say, I'm going to, I'm going to take a pathway of maturity, I want to grow in these things, then it's like saying, God, make me mature. Take me from infancy or adolescence and Make me a father or mother in the faith. I had uh, one woman in the church, she came to me and she said, I've tried for years to do the read the Bible in a year plan, and it's so hard. It's about four chapters a day, just to let you know. That's about how long it is. And uh, it's to- it is doable, but it's a, bit of a, it's a bit of a chunk. And she said, I found a read the Bible in two years plan. And I started reading it, and it's working for me. And I was like, yes, yes. When we find something that helps us to mature, that works for us, and we embrace it, and we buy in, God will use that. He'll use that to grow us. He'll use this to grow us up to become mature in Christ. So maybe you're part of a life group or a women's Bible study or, or a men's prayer time. All of those commitments, and not just commitments for commitment's sake, but actually things where you grow, where you develop, where you're challenged in your faith. They'll help you grow in Christ. I was reading this, um, reading a woman's blog. She was an older woman. She's been in, in Christian ministry for a lot more years than I have. And she was saying what, it, what it's like to be older and start to notice little signs that you're maturing. <laughs> that was what, basically what the essence of her blog was. What are the little signs that she started to notice over all these years? Now, she's probably 25 years older than I am, so I was like, I want to know. What will I experience in the next 25 years if I continue to follow Jesus? Maybe I'll experience some of the things she experienced. And this is what she These were her itemized list. And I've, uh, I've rewritten it because it was a longer blog, but I just... So she said, the more I read the Word, the hungrier I get for reading the Word. The more I read the word, the hungrier I get to read the word. I thought, she said, I'm noticing that in me. 
Now, most of what she wrote, she said, I'm surprised by all these things, basically was her premise. She says, I, I didn't know this, this is how it would feel or what I would experience. So she was surprised by that. She goes, oh, I read the word, but then my appetite grows even more, and I'm hungrier for more of it. And then she said, the gospel is alive, it's powerful, and it's bigger in me than it used to be. Now, I was sort of talking about that before. It needs to penetrate every nook and cranny of our hearts and our lives. But that's what she experienced. The gospel has become more alive, more powerful. Of course, Paul always said it was the power of God unto salvation, but it's the power of God for transformation as well of our, of our lives. The gospel is alive, powerful, and bigger than ever in me. I think this one was interesting. She said, I have a stronger faith, but I have fewer answers about God. <laughs> she said in her blog, she said, I've learned to embrace mystery. There's a lot of things I thought I would know about God by now, intellectually, that I don't know. But I have less doubt than ever before. What an interesting combination. She said, I'm, I have more grace for others as I've come to understand more deeply the grace that I have received. I have more grace for others as I've come to understand more deeply the grace that I've received from my own sin. That's powerful. I think that's the character of Christ starting to show up. Mercy and grace, compassion. When you start to realize how much you needed it and do still need it. She said this about maturity. She said, real maturity, she said, and this was another surprise for her. Real maturity is marked by more childlike dependence, not less. So when Jesus said, you know, if you want to come into the kingdom of heaven, you've got to be like a little child. You've got to come believing, you know, like a little child just believes very simply. He says, that childlike dependence on God is more important. It's not something you wean yourself off of. It's something you need more and more as you mature. And it's a sign of maturity that you become more and more dependent on God and trusting in him. She said, suffering is not something to be avoided at all costs. She thought that when she was younger. But an inescapable, inescapable reality, you're going to suffer. Where Christ's sufficiency, Jesus is enough, and our transformation may be displayed. Again, she was surprised by that. She was trying in her earlier years to avoid all suffering. And then she realized that it was in the times where she suffered that God was working in the background for her good to transform her character, but also to demonstrate and show to the world that Jesus is enough. Often we think that, how could I show to the world that Jesus is enough? Well, when I pull up in my Lexus and I step out in my Armani suit and I... Hey, this is awesome. Following Jesus is awesome. Well, people might be drawn to the Lexus and the Armani suit, but they might not be drawn to Jesus. But it's when you're sick and life has gone horribly wrong and disaster strikes and you're impoverished and you still have joy in Jesus that people go, whoa, what do you have? What do you have? One of my friends, he's actually going to come speak to us in June. He's, we support him. He's our partners in mission. But Danny DeLong used to live in England. And what he would do is he would take English school kids, not Christians, to Africa 
to, and he said, we're going to go on a mission to help the people of Africa. And he sort of laughed up his sleeve because he knew the truth of it. What these British school kids needed was a dose of Africa. <laughs> so they would get there and they would be ministering and in very good practical ways and, you know, helping with real needs in the community to African Christians. But by the end of their time there, they'd be asking Danny some very penetrating questions. They'd say, they have nothing, but they're happy and I'm not. So they must have something. And Danny, who was a believer, was able to point them that direction. Again, this was a school-sponsored thing. We're going to go to Africa, build wells, and do these things. But these kids would, by the end of the week, they'd be just, or by the end of several weeks, they'd be just saying, I'm realizing my emptiness. I'm realizing my desire for something more. And I'm realizing that they have it, and I don't. I have all the things my mom and dad can give me back in England, and I don't have what they have. And Danny was able to share the gospel with him, the reality of life with Christ and how it's so, such a difference maker. Kathy Little, two more of her observations. She said, the awfulness of life without Christ is becoming exponentially more clear. As she matured, the awfulness of life without Christ is becoming exponentially more clear. She said, she writes, life without hope, life without purpose, life without meaning, and life without unfailing love. She wrote, it's a great eternal tragedy. Again, this was not as clear when she was young, but it became more clear as she matured in Christ. And then she writes this, and this is sort of just cute at the end. She said, when I was a teenager back in, I don't know where, somewhere, uh, she said, I, I went to a tent meeting and we sang this old song, the things of earth are growing strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And she said, I didn't know what that meant until now. But the things of earth, all the things I wanted, desired, and thought would make me happy seem pale by comparison to the glory of God. And I realize as I grow and as I change and as I mature in Christ that I want Jesus. I want Jesus. And the things of earth that everybody else is pining after are growing strangely dim. So I want to, this is my, the last thing I want to share with you because I thought it was so helpful. It's just from a pastor. So this is what it might be like for you as you grow in maturity. And some of you might have recognized some of those things already in your life. And you go, oh, goody, I, mean, I did mature a little bit, <laughs> you know, just to encourage you, right? But I read this article here really quickly by... Um, it's actually an eight-step thing. It sounds long, right, in the few minutes we have left, but I'm just going to read it really quickly. It's a pathway of maturing others. So you might come away from this message missing the fact that we're on a mission, and I don't want that to be missed, right? So it's one thing to say, whoa, man, I got to grow up, just like I said when our firstborn was born. I got to grow up. I got to become more mature in Christ. But here's the thing. Not only is that in play, but you're called to play a part in helping others mature in Christ. And so I was reading this guy's article, and he said, I've just got, he, he'd worked out to eight steps, and it sounds like a lot, but it's, it, I think it's, it'll be, let me read it to you, and, and hopefully it'll help you to figure out where you're at in helping others mature in Christ. So this is a guy who's trying to, like St. Patrick, take people who are unaware of 
the love of Jesus, unaware of what he's done for them, unaware of the central role he's meant to play in their life, and taking them to the point where they can lead as fathers and mothers in the faith and help people like they were. So the full circle. This is what he said. He says, it starts with contact. He says, meet your neighbors. Remember their names. Learn how to specifically love and care for them. Learn the basics of who they are, their name, what brought them to the neighborhood, their family details, their occupation and key relationships. Embrace the small talk and surface level conversations, not just to be polite, but to love them by getting to know them. Right? What was St. Patrick criticized for? Spending time with those sinners and barbarians. You might have to, if you want to be effective in helping disciple people, you might have to, and pardon the expression because I don't mean it like it sounds, but waste time with people who aren't Christians. Now, it's not a waste. That's the truth of it. But you might have to get over that feeling initially. I'm wasting time. No, you're not. So contact. Then he says, converse. That's his second phrase. Contact, then converse. Get into the habit of asking good questions to generate meaningful conversations. Learn the art of drawing people out. Most people only ever experience small talk. If you have 10 conversations in the day, and all 10 are about that it's spring. And then one person comes and asks you a good question. At the end of the day, are you going to say, man... Boy, those conversations about the weather, they're very significant. No, it's the one person that draws you out. Let them know that you're the kind of friend who's willing to go deeper. Share your life and be vulnerable first. Invite them to share more of themselves by sharing more of yourself as well. So contact, converse, community. So let's say you've gone, you've already contacted, you've already conversed with them. Now, Invite them into your community. As your neighbor or coworker or classmate learns you're a Christian and begins to have mean, meaningful conversations with you, introduce them to your Christian community. This is my friend. I've had, I sometimes go into businesses and people I know from the church will say, hey, this is my pastor. And then they say, how old is your pastor? Anyhow, stuff like that happens. But, uh, and I always say, older than you think. Older than you think. I'm not in my 20s. I really am in my 40s. It's hard to believe. Um, but invite them into your Christian community. It's, it's neat. I, there's one guy I've been inviting to church again and again. I wonder if he's here. Hmm, it would be interesting if he was. Anyhow, I'm inviting him to church several times. And every time we talk, he even recounts who he knows at this church. It's quite interesting. So I'll say, yeah, come to church. You can sit with, well, let's just use a generic name, Bob. Well, you can sit with Bob. And then he's like, Oh, yeah, I could sit with Bob, but I could also sit with Larry. And I'm like, yeah, that's right. You know Larry? I'm like, who else do you know? Anyhow, it's, it's great. So it's like all these points of connection. I think by the time he shows up at church, he's going to find out he knows dozens of people here. Because he does. But invite them into your Christian community. Help them meet different people. And then, again, they'll get a little taste of some of the powerful effects of the gospel. Now, we want our community more and more shaped by the gospel all the time and our lives more and more shaped by the gospel all the time. So we're, we're wanting the gospel to be in us powerfully, transforming us, making us mature in Christ so that even incidental exchanges with us, people say there's something different about these people. 
When, it, when the church is what it should be, there's no other community on earth that shares life like the Christian church. When it's what it should be. I'm not saying we've arrived. I'm just saying that our potential is enormous in this way. Then, number four is the gospel. If you've had meaningful conversations with your friend, you've introduced them to your community, they might have already heard little snippets of the gospel, but at some point, sooner or later, we need to clearly explain the gospel to others and call them to respond. So, there's lots of, I I don't have time to do it today, but we'll probably do more of this in the future. Uh, Whatever approach you use, and some of you already, you say, I I sort of have a way I do explain the gospel. I've, I've done this a few times, and it's sort of a regular pattern I use. But choose one concise way to share the core message of the gospel. I remember taking out one of my youth kids back in, in uh, my Nippon days who was not a follower of Jesus, but he just loved coming to youth group. And uh, I took him out to um, the Venice house. Yeah, was it the Venice house? Anyhow, it was, it, this is a restaurant where you go down to the basement and eat down there. That was weird. Anyhow, I took him to the Venice house. And I just said, you know what? I like you. We've been on snowboarding trips together. We were skateboarding buddies for a while till my board broke. Uh, and um, I've known you for a long time. And I just, I really like you. And I think it wouldn't be right of me not to be a good enough friend to tell you what I believe about your future. And so I just took out a napkin. And I just drew, if you've been in the membership class, you've seen me draw that, you know, two sides of a, you know, with a canyon in between. And what can cross this bridge? Not our good works. But... Only Jesus. And I basically just shared. That was the method I used with him. And I just said to him, I just like you so much, I wouldn't want you to not know what I know. And I wouldn't want to not share this with you. And I think it is going to be something that could bring great happiness and joy in your future. And so I shared it that way, and and you might find different ways, but just find a concise way to share the core message of the gospel. Number five, convert. Now, you can't convert anyone, but you can invite them. If they've understood the gospel, call them to trust in Jesus and to turn from their sin. Invite them. I'm going to move on. Commit. Commit. Jesus never wants our faith in him to stay private. So if they've become a new Christian, um, help the new Christian go public by joining a good Bible-teaching church and take their first steps of going public with their faith. Obviously, baptism is the one that we... We, we do, because Jesus told us to. So, and stay public through active church engagement and membership in the church. And participate in communion and, all the, and the life of the church. Help them to commit to a body, not just to Jesus, but also to his body. And then grow. If the person is a committed member, help them to grow in conviction about what the Bible teaches and in character. I mean, continue to proclaim Christ to them, because that's what's going to help them grow, just like it's going to help us grow. But continue to disciple them. Uh, Read the Bible with them. Say, can we read the Bible together? Or can we go to a Bible study together? Or we get into a life group that's reading John or whatever. So they can get to the point where they can understand the Bible enough so it can, uh, we talk about the Bible correcting us. It can correct them. It can correct you. The great thing about new Christians, if, if you're walking with them, is they'll correct you as an older Christian. It's sort of disconcerting when it happens, but it's wonderful at the same time. They're like, wow, I read the Bible, and it says you should be this passionate for Jesus. Steve, I don't see that in your life. (laughs) You're like, whoa, it's got real. And it's good. It's good. Wonderful to walk with people who are growing so rapidly in, in the Lord. And then go. 
By the time they get done all those first seven steps, it's time for them to be a father and mother in the faith and say, hey, have you talked to your neighbor yet and gotten to know them? Let's stand together.